Blog Talk Radio. Hey, Michelle. Hey. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Welcome to Can We Talk For Real, Blog Talk Radio, Wednesday night. This is Terry. And Michelle. Hey. So, how's it going, Michelle? Hey, hey, hey. It's, it's going, girl, you know. But all I can say is when you, uh, when you are... Uh, uh, strong, outspoken black woman. You got to stay armored up. <laughs> you got to stay armored up because you never know when some misguided person is going to want to step to you. That's all I got to say, you know. And I was hoping, wow. I was hoping you got a chance to say something about that. Like I said, I looked at Facebook and I'm like, yes, don't bring oh, yeah. it to the wrong one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really, don't don't bring it, you know. And the thing, you know, and you know, I, you know, I sometimes think, and but sometimes people underestimate black women, black people in general, but particularly black women, and um, you know, they think that you know, we should, you can say anything, you can do anything, you can maybe think that you can intimidate us. You know, particularly if you are white and male, you know. And it's like, wake up, folks. Those days of patriarchy and power are over, you know. So I mean, you've got sisters. I mean, sisters are leading it. Who's running Black Lives Matter? Okay. Yes. Who are, what are women doing? You know, you, you can't. You can't. And, you know, and we... And don't get me wrong, you know, I think that there's all kinds of people in the world, and I love all kinds of people. But I also understand that there are some people who still feel that we, especially black people, especially women, should be beholden to them for any crumb they might want to throw our way. And you know what? It ain't happening. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And you can't talk for somebody that you haven't walked in their shoes. Thank you. Thank that's, you. That's you know. just me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, Can't tell me what yeah. I feel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what? And, and it sort of shows, too, that, you know, and that's what we're trying to work towards. And, you know, never, like you said, will you be able to, to walk in somebody's shoes and totally under, understand where they were. You know, I have Asian sisters. I have trans sisters. I have white teachers, people who I really, 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 really care about, who I support completely, and if their back is against the wall, they can call me. And there are overlapping things that we all have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you haven't grown up with them in their shoes, living their lives and all the nuances of the things that make you that, you, you can't. You can't say... You can empathize, but you can't say, oh, I, I, I've been there. You know, no, you haven't been right there. Right. You haven't been close to it. Mm-hmm. I tell you, Michelle, so, being a strong black woman is something else these days. I tell you, you know, <laughs> hey, hey, and even when I'm dressed up and looking super thin, don't don't get it twisted. <laughs> <laughs> don't get it twisted, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That is... That's a good segue into to kind of like a, what we're going to talk about tonight, because this is a, the second, well, it's actually the third author of a story from uh, Strengths of My Soul, which is about women, 
the empowerment mm-hmm. that we have, um, the tenacity we have, the, the strength that we show, the fact that we we carry the world. There's no joke, you know. There's no talking about. I don't care who's president, anything else. We we carry the world, you know. So don't get that mistaken with anything else, you know. You are you are a second rate citizen. Sorry, not Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. us. So yeah. Well, real quick, Trump. I think you let him have it. No. (laughs) Oh, oh, but I'm not done. I didn't think so. <laughs> but I'm not done, you know, you know, but I'm not done, you know. I mean, I often tell people, you know, how you can be like both of your parents. Now, my father could could burn hot, you know. He would get hot and he would flare up and do it. But my mother sometimes would smile and say, okay, and walk out the room. And, you know, you wanted to go run down and catch her and stop her because you didn't know, you know. I mean, and so you have to have both, you know. You have to do both, and I think that you know that hey, that's where I'm at. I've got a I've got a long fuse, and it burns real hot. <laughs> yeah, the wrath of a black woman. Uh-huh. I tell you, I tell you. So tell you what, let's um, let's go ahead into our disclaimer. Our disclaimer. uh, Bring our guest on. Okay. Okay. Our disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on Can We Talk For Real blog talk radio show, hosts, co-hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. The hosts appreciate your opinion and your openness. Can We Talk For Real does not condone disrespect to the show, content, co-hosts, and or guests. The host or co-host are not counselors and advise you to seek professional consultation if needed. Nice. So we we have the 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 I want to say it's uh, the luxury, the joy of being able to network and be a part of a lot of people from a, a lot of different uh, areas in life. Um, mm-hmm. One certain person we have um, is Sharon Jameson, who, you know, she speaks, she writes, she brings people together, she ministers, she um, she does workshops, she's about women, she's about empowerment, you know, she's about family. Um, the one thing I've got to give to her, this book, The Strength of My Soul, Stories of Sisterhood, Triumph and Inspiration, is a book Anyone that has a teenage daughter needs mm. to get, and they need to start reading it together. Because I actually went on and put it on my Kindle and was reading. I was like, okay, this is some powerful stuff. You know, I'd love to get all of them into a room and have this mm. big conversation with with a group of teens all the way to college, all the way to hundred so that they could see where we came from, because there's a lot of older women who are giving you, I mean, solid advice, especially even tonight's guests. Um, And then there are some who are younger who have been through some stuff that we probably would never go through. Like you said, everybody can't walk in everybody's shoes. 
So for them to hear all the sides of where you've been, where you are, and where you may be going, I think that right there would be the best tool for young women there is because they learn mm-hmm. from each other and from, and from a, a good source, older and younger women. Can't get any better than that. Mm. That's what I would like to do. Mm-hmm. But tonight's guest um, is, you know, in, in this becoming because of the simple fact Mother's Day was Sunday. So we want to definitely tell everybody Happy Mother's Day you know, to all of you and to those who, um, you know, did not. And were able to have their mother with them, but in a way you actually did because she was your garden angel. Mm-hmm. So she walked with them Mother's Day. Um, but we're going to actually talk to them about a union between a mother and a daughter. And it's a daughter who is the same sex gender loving woman. I got a chance to talk to her before the show yesterday. And if I could have sat and talked to her for about three, four more hours, I would. Because she is interesting, her story is interesting, and she actually has two parts. So we're going to talk the first hour about the the, the daughter, same gender, loving sex uh, woman. And then we're going to take that second hour to talk about, there's a book that's coming out that talks about her other child, her son. So tonight's going to be an interesting interesting conversation. So let's go ahead and bring in Dr. Carol and Lenore, her daughter. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so thank much. You. I and really a belated appreciate happy Mother's Day. Well, thank you. And belated happy Mother's Day to all of you who are listening. It's just thank wonderful you, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hello, hello, this is Lenore. Hey, Lenore, hey, how Lenora. you doing? Hi there. Can the two of you hear us? Yep, we yeah. can hear loud and clear. Okay. Very good. Definitely. Thank you. Definitely. Well, so we are looking, tell you. Both of us are looking forward to um, sharing with you and the audience anything, anything and everything that we possibly can that will help us to understand the importance of love and unconditional love. And the only way we can do that is to really move out of our own way. And I know we're not going to talk about that until later on, but that's the purpose of my 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 second book. Perfect. So before we get into that, I'd like for... Lenore, we're going to start with you. Tell the audience a little bit about you. Um, I am a free spirit. I am... Fitting image of my mother. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Um, I uh, originally from Queens, New York. I lived in California for 21 years, um, and then moved to Georgia uh, two years ago. I worked in management with protective services, and I'm also a freelance creative artist, and have been for a little over 10 years. And I have. Uh, celebrated 18 years of sobriety uh, just about a week, two weeks ago. Um, very spiritual. Congra- Thank congratulations. You. Um, very spiritual. I just got baptized with, um, I'm a new member with my parents' church and recently got baptized, and uh, which is 
Victory for the World Church in Stone Mountain. Dr. Samuel is my pastor and my family's pastor, and I was baptized by him. I am also married, recently married, January 10th, 2014. I married my spouse, Sandra, and um, my family is very accepting of of my um, uh, marriage, of my sexuality, of my spouse, and I'm just in bliss at this stage of my life. I just turned 57 in December, and I'm just really happy to be reunited with my family, uh, specifically reunited and have a best friendship with my mother and have a great relationship with my brother, and I'm just in a really good place. Mm-hmm. And my stepfather nice. is a great male in my life, and I have a really great relationship with him and love him very much. Nice. And just to tell you, your picture, yeah, I wouldn't have thought 57. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's so what they say, black don't cry. <laughs> Here you go. Here you thank go. you. You're welcome, welcome. So, Dr. Carey, you know you wasn't getting off the hook. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, boy, so much to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's so much to say, and uh, I know that uh, I shared quite a bit uh, in um, the strength of my soul, but I'm an industrial psychologist uh, by training and started my own business back in 1991. But prior to that, I just wanted to share with you that mm-hmm. I also have been a high school a dropout. I um, moved out of my own way mm-hmm. to recognize the importance of, um, I guess, stepping into your passion. And I've always had a desire to understand human behavior. Why do we behave the way mm-hmm. we do? So as a result of that, I ended up getting my bachelor's in mm-hmm. psychology. And then I just loved what I was learning. I ultimately uh, earned my master's degree immediately after and had no idea that I was going to earn my doctorate degree, but it was, I guess, God's desire for me to do what I do uh, today, and that's having my own company, uh, the Highsmith Group. I generally, not generally, but professionally, I I stand in front of adults uh, between the ages of probably 22 to 65, almost weekly, that evolves around leadership and just understanding yourself better so you can be a better manager and a better leader. Um, I really enjoy very much what I do, even though I'm 72 years of age. Um, My family, especially my children, why are you still working, Mom? Why are you still working? But I'm just so engaged with what it is that I do. And I do quite a bit of traveling. So I've been to every continent, with the exception of Australia, as well as uh, the Antarctica, <laughs> and um, just uh, moved out of my way in so many ways because primarily because I've learned to accept differences primarily because of my travel, and we are more. I found that we are more alike than we are different, no matter where we go in the world, and uh, I think that just kind of helped me to appreciate uh, the choices that God has given to us. Uh, which I, as you probably read in my book, I consider it a choice that it's a gift of choice that many of us just take for granted. I hear so many people, especially in my uh, counseling, they say, I don't have a choice. 
we all have choice. It may come with consequence, but we have mm. choice. So mm. this is where I am today. I am um, married for the second time. I uh, got married the first time at age 19. And when you read my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, it was a, an abusive marriage, but I stayed in the marriage for 19 years, primarily because of I believed in the sacrament of marriage. I still do. I still believe in the sacrament of marriage. So I did whatever I could to sustain it, primarily because of my children. But then it got to a place where I just knew that if I stayed in it, I would be harmed. Perhaps he would be harmed. My children would be harmed. So I finally moved out of it. So I just want to add this caveat before I have a closure on talking about me. Um, I had not, and this is, again, um, you know, God working in my life. I had not had any intention of marrying for the second time a few years after I divorced. And the reason why this happened, it was just almost serendipity. I met a man who is still in my life. We're married now 29 years. Um, wow. That was meant to happen, and, you know, this is, again, God's control. And he was at a place, and I was at a place, and, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, but he's very, very significant in my life today, and he's also significant in the life of my children. So that's where I am, and I'm very content with life. And when it comes to Lenore, um, I'll wait until you ask a question about our tumultuous relationship for many, many years uh, that we came together. And we're both women, and we're 15 years apart. We're 15 years apart. So we've learned to love each other, to talk to each other, to have intimate conversations the way friends do, um, to not judge, uh, to just recognize that she's in a, my offspring, who I love unconditionally. And when, we, when I think about people who are gay, my dad happened to be gay also, who I loved unconditionally, and it didn't make any difference to me because he was my dad. Um, but I've also learned that uh, most of the time when we think about the relationship that we have specifically with a child, we have expectations of them that, that is much greater than perhaps they can give us. This is many parents, many parents do. And when Lenore shared with me that she was gay, there was a level of disappointment only because I knew the life that my father lived. And also, too, it just affected me in terms of me being her mother and what I expected of her as my daughter. Now, I'm at a totally different place today, totally different place, because I do strongly believe, uh, and I know that there's probably, this is probably going to come to pass, that... Um, the researchers out there are just going to confirm that this is genetic. We have many researchers out there. In other words, Lenore was born gay. And just like I'm born black, I know what I went through as a black woman. So what in the world happened to a person who is born gay and is as much disdain for them as it was for me or for any of us who are black? simply because of another person's concept, perception, or even the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, you know, so there's so much there, and I had to go through a major process to get to where I am now, where I'm so at peace. Not only with Lenore, I have so many same-gender, loving friends, uh, people in my life, and even some individuals. A woman asked me just a few weeks ago, 
contacted me by phone and wanted to know who was the same gender-loving person, who is the same gender-loving person. Would I adopt her? And this is a grown woman, but she knows my spirit. She knows my spirit. So that, in a nutshell, I think is me, unless Lenore has something to add. But that's who I am. <laughs> so, so let's let's do this because both of you actually, you know, kind of jumped into it, which is great because uh, that's what we do here on Can We Talk for Real? We just converse. But you're a part of a anthology. You're a part of um, Strength of My Soul, you know, Sisterhood. Yes. How or when did you meet Sharon, and how did you get involved in this process? Well, Sharon and I go back, Minister Sharon, I call her, because I only knew her as a minister uh, from at my church, Victory for the World. Um, I've known her probably for a good 15 years, probably, because that, wow. that's how long I've been at Victory. And, of course, she's um, younger than me. She's probably around... Lenore's age, but I've always admired her in terms of how um, the messages that she uh, serves and also to her interaction with other people. I've um, just always admired that about her. Now, we were never really what I would call close in terms of friendships, but there was always a woman-to-woman admiration, I think, between the two of us. I had started writing my book, um, not to strengthen my soul, but my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, perhaps two and a half years ago. So when Sharon, Minister Sharon, came to me last summer, last summer, and talked about this anthology, and she knew me, and I also do presentations at the church and get very involved with different functions. So she knew me, she knew some of my wisdom, for lack of another term, and she asked whether I'd be willing to... to to bring in a chapter, and I said, well, only if I can bring in something that I've already written because I was in the midst of writing my own book, and I was afraid that if I stopped or paused, it would delay me, and so she said that would be no problem. So in a week, I sent her the um, uh, the a same gender, the union between a mother and a same gender loving daughter. I sent her the chapter. She absolutely loved it. Uh, she came to me, and I have to share this because this is real talk. Keep in mind that uh, I always looked at myself when I became pregnant with Lenore as doing something that I was guilty of, even though it was considered to be statutory rape, because I was 14 and he was 22. And I was a virgin, and it was in my mother's home, and it was a big home, and this was in my brother's room that this occurred. And because of my, I guess, my obedience or my, um, uh, how can I say, my values is to be obedient to adults, I never really gave thought to how can I stop this. So when I found out that I was uh, pregnant, of course, I wasn't sure what to do. I hid it for nine months. But when Sharon read my story and came to me and just so excited and also amazed with my life story or what I shared in, my, in this particular chapter, the first thing she said, or one of the first things she said was, I didn't know that you were raped. And my response to her was, I wasn't raped. And all of a sudden it hit me for all of these years 
I was carrying around guilt of being doing something inappropriate was ever connecting to the fact that I was raped. So it was just, and so we're talking about 2016 that she said this to me. And I was raped back in 1957. So moving out of your way simply means connecting the dots to who you are today and what we're carrying specifically around secrets and guilt that cause us to not have the level of self-esteem or the centered peace that we all should have. So that was a paradigm shift for me. Just by her saying to me, I didn't know you were raped. And my response, and when I thought about it, I said, my God, I was raped. So I'm just sharing this with you. That's how I met Sharon. That's how I got involved with the anthology, and I'm so grateful to her because I wanted to be an author for many, many, many years. But there was anxiety and fear there. And because of her, I already started writing my book, but because she came to me, uh, she was the impetus that I needed uh, to just move forward and to even be more explicit or more transparent in the book that I'm currently writing. So I thank her for that, and I do know that God placed her in on my life. I do believe that everything in life that happens, including this conversation that I'm having with you and praying that people who are listening to this conversation will realize that they are meant to be hearing me and hearing my daughter, specifically when we have a dissension between a mother, a daughter, a mother, a son, a father, a mother, simply because they're different, no matter what that difference might be. So it's a matter of just um, talking, talking. Lenore and I talk a lot, and I accept her as a very loving, spiritual, spirited woman who is a good person. Nothing more, nothing less. So that's who I am, and that's how I met you. Yes, you are. Okay, perfect. So let's take you guys back, because I read the whole piece. And at that point, I was like, okay, I got questions. You actually answered okay. the one about the research. Um, you know, the fact that you've you, you researched it, and sooner or later we'll probably have an answer to that. But you made the decision to put your daughter in foster care. But at the same time, at the age that you were, you made a more adult decision to stay in her life. Absolutely. Absolutely. At 15. So, at 15. You know, at 15. So, and a lot of 15-year-olds, I don't think, would even think that. Maybe even back in the day, they would have thought to be like, okay, you know what? You're giving me this choice, either adoption or, or foster care. Well, I'm going to put in foster care, but I'm going to stay a part of this life that I right. brought in. A lot of them would have just put in foster care and they'd walked away, mm-hmm. started Absolutely. a whole new life, and did something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So. Yeah. To Lenore, I have a question for you. Not first question is this: Is your real name Lenore or is it Maisha? Oh, I, my name is Lenore <laughs> Maisha Rivers. My, name, okay. my middle name is Maisha, and that was my confirmation name. My mom named me Lenore Rivers. Okay. And okay. when I was confirmed in Catholic school, 
mm-hmm. I chose Maisha, and, and Mom loved it. So that's <laughs> so we added that to my um, identity. Also, Teresa, I just want to add to that. Um, you're probably asking Lenore that particular question regarding Maisha, because I believe do do I mention, mm-hmm. make mention of the name as Maisha? And I did this mm-hmm. when you read when you read the book, my book, Moving Out of My Own Way. Um, I used uh, different names because I talk about my entire family. So I use different names, and it's generally the middle name for most of the people who are in my book. So that's just to protect them, just to protect them. So that's why I did that. Okay, okay. So do you prefer Lenore or your middle name? Um, I prefer Lenore. But I'm. Oh, okay. I love my middle name also. I just don't hear it often. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, and on Facebook, it's Lee Maisha. So I'm I'm flexible. She's a free spirit. She's I'm a free, free spirit. spirit. <laughs> it's okay. Definitely. Definitely. That's okay. okay. We, we like free, we like free spirits here on the show. Yeah, definitely. Right. So if you call me Maisha. So, I know it's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I person like Lenore, so that's what I'm going to call you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So a couple of questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like I told you, Mother, we actually have conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll ask you questions that will lead to real conversations. So okay. you were in foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, when were you told that the woman that was coming to see you, or when do you remember, was your mother? All I remember is mom came to pick me up every single weekend, and I remember on Fridays I would be at the window waiting for her, and then um, I don't really remember the foster parents. Mom, she described them. I just remember that um, I couldn't wait to see her. I was waiting. And then when mom had to bring me back home on Sunday evening or su- sometime Sunday, um, mom shared with me, and I don't remember this, every single Sunday without fail, I would have a temper tantrum. I would cry. I didn't want to separate from her at all. I just adore, I've always adored my mother. And she was like my my God. And even today, it's still, I have so much admiration. But that's that's all I remember is, wanting to be with her, waiting on Fridays. And when mom got out that car or I saw her walking down the street, I was so excited. And Lenore always talked about the foster home as a very dark place. Of course, I'm not, you know, I don't know what that meant in the eyes of a, uh, you know, or the the emotions of a three-year-old or a two-year-old. But she always, as an adult, she told it was just very, very dark and very gloomy and almost like there was something around her that she wasn't comfortable with. So what age did she come out? What age did she come out of foster care? Um, She came out at three. um, Okay. Because that's when, see, I made a commitment to myself. Keep in mind, I had Lenora at age 15. And I do believe now at age 72 that I was given uh, the gift of discernment. And when I say discernment, I'm simply made. I just knew that I could not live with myself, even at age 15, if I did not know where my daughter was in life. So that's what caused me to make this choice, this decision. I need to keep her. 
So I had to make the choice whether my father or his goal was, you have to finish high school. And so I stayed in school until 18, and I was expecting to graduate, and then I was going to get Lenore out, and she was going to be three years old. Unfortunately, I failed history. And as a result of failing history, that meant I needed to stay another six months in school. And because of the commitment that I made to myself that I was going to get my daughter, I dropped out of high school so that I can get her, and that's what I did. And it was hard. I had a individual uh, who read my story, who read my chapter, and she said to me, she came up to me, and she wanted to know, why couldn't your mother keep your daughter instead of her going into a foster home? And I said, well, we were raised, this is someone from the South uh, who spoke to me about this. I said, we're, we're from the North, and my mother, and we were not wealthy, and my mother worked just like many women did at that particular time. So for me to ask my mother, I wouldn't even think of it. I need you to take care of my daughter. That was my responsibility. That's how I was raised. We're accountable. My mom used to always say, when you, you make your bed, Let's see. When you make you when you make your bed, Lay in you, it. you must lie in it. Mm-hmm. And that meant to me that this is your bed. You made it. Mm-hmm. You have to be accountable. And mm-hmm. so I never even thought to ask my mother to to take care of my daughter while I continued school. This was my mistake, and that's how I looked at it. Well, I when, how one, how. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the foster care system, how did they make it easy for you to to stay in your daughter's life? I mean, did you, I mean, you know, you're, you're young. And, you know, and, and usually mm-hmm. when people say foster care system, you know, they, they aren't really trying to help. They've got your care, you know. So how did they, did they help you or what did you have to do at your young age to make sure that you were able to be in your daughter's uh, life. How did you navigate that system to make that happen? Yeah, well, she was in a um, a uh, a home at first for the first year. She was in a Catholic um, foster home, for lack of another term. It was called Angel Guardian Home and located in Brooklyn, New York. And she stayed there only for a year. And the reason what that what that home did was also find foster parents for people like me who wanted to keep, they wanted me to sign adoption papers, which I would not do. And fortunately, I did not do that because if I had signed papers, of course, we'd have a different story. I wouldn't be the person who I am today. Um, And Lenore wouldn't be the person she is today. She'd be looking for me or being angry with me because I let her go. Uh, And that happens to many people who search for their parents once they become adults. But uh, because of this Catholic system who actually identified foster foster homes for children, Lenore was actually, uh, a home was identified for her before she was even, I don't think she was 12 months old. She was like 11 months old. So as a result of that, I met the person, the foster parents, and I went every weekend and I just picked her up. Mm-hmm. So it was just like you or me. And when I say a foster home, they get paid for this. They get paid for this. So, you know, they do whatever they need to do. Um, to meet the expectations of uh, the the social services. Mm -hmm. So I didn't particularly know them on a social level. I just picked up Lenore, and I brought her back. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, but it was no hardship. No, they never said anything to me that was negative. They weren't as friendly as I would, you know, as I, you know, I'm an adult now and I'm looking at it and I'm stepping back. They never really came to me and said, oh, let me just tell you about Lenore, what she did this week and, you know, and, and how she's doing and none of that. It was never an exchange. They would open the door. It would be in a very stealth, step, in a, in a very secret type of way and they would just pass me Lenore to the door and I would take Lenore and I would leave. And I'd bring her back, and they would do the same thing. So I never walked into the house. Now, hindsight, and this is all part of my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, I speak quite a bit about my choice at 15 and how I came to this choice and what had happened there. And I know today what I would have done. I literally, you know, I would have said, well, I'd like to come in. I'd like to see where Lenore sleeps, uh, you know, and, and who else is in the house. I would have done that. But I was too young too naive, uh, too reserved, too shy, um, too dependent, even though I, you know, know I was probably very independent, but I was dependent. You know, I was still a child. I was still a child. So there was no interferences the way, the way you're posing the question. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does that make so sense? Now, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, in the 50s, like mom was explaining to me, and even my, my aunt, mom has siblings, and they, everybody chipped in, you know, in terms of, like, my other two aunts, my mom's two sisters, they helped. Like, sometimes they would just watch me over the weekend if mom was busy or had chores to do, et cetera. But mom always came to pick me up. Mm-hmm. We actually have a caller that I think we want to bring in for for um, oh. a little bit of the conversation. First three okay. numbers are six, seven, eight. Last four, one zero four nine. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello, Hello. six, Hi. seven, eight, one zero four nine. How you doing? <laughs> no one can Hello? Hello? Can you can you hear us? Okay. Well, let's go on to the next steps. So now with the foster care, um you come back and, and you get your daughter. Yeah. Um and I guess this is for you, Lenora, because yes. you're reading um about the rejection. Did the rejection happen because you were gay? Or did rebellion happen and then people recognized it, saw it, started talking about it? How did that occur? And at what age did it kind of start? And when did it end or did it end? Um, Okay, a couple of questions. Well, I knew that I was attracted to the same sex when I was about five or six years old. Um, I was very observant. Um, We have a very close-knit family, and my grandfather was gay. Out of all my cousins, I'm the firstborn. I was the only one that knew. I didn't know the words. I didn't know homosexuality or gay. I just knew that my grandpa had a friend, 
and they lived together, and they loved one another. And I also knew that my grandpa loved my grandmother, so he would always come to the house that he bought for my grandmother and his children on weekends. And I was there on weekends because mom would pick me up from foster home and bring me to her mother's house, which is my grandmother, where she lived. So Mm -hmm. um, I saw and sensed that my grandfather was gay. I didn't know how to, I didn't know the language for that, but I, I, I felt it. And then I had a sense. And then my stepdad, my brother's father, um, he had relatives or siblings who were gay as well. So I saw and had a sense that there was a gay energy around me I never talked about it, and I had a sense that it wasn't okay to talk about it. So that was the beginning of internalizing um, the homophobia, my own internal homophobia. And, you know, later on down the line when I got sober and went into counseling and Mm -hmm. even having conversations with my mother Mm -hmm. and some of my cousins and friends, I got in touch with and healed from my own internalized homophobia. So the rejection, it began internally. And then externally, it was because of the way I carry myself. I'm more masculine identified. I'm not a feminine, same-gender-loving woman. So I was struggling from, like, maybe first grade with how I presented myself to the world. I went to Catholic school for a long time, and we had to wear uniforms. And so uh-huh. on weekends, I always wanted to play in, you know, overalls or or more uh, look more look like a, a boy or a tomboy. And mom didn't, she didn't know, and I didn't express it to her. So mom would always dress me up real pretty, <laughs> and sometimes I she'd have the same outfit that. She dressed me up in the same outfit she had on because we looked so much alike. And I would suffer silently because I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't comfortable with stockings and heels and this and that. But I did it for a long time. So the rejection piece, back to your original question, was when I began to um, feel a sense of asserting how I wanted to look to the world. And that was a slow process of experiencing rejection, experiencing people looking at me a certain way. Even my relatives, mm-hmm. I'll never forget my grandmother asked me, why do you dress like that? And I said, I'm more comfortable. And then I explained, my grandmother and I were very close, like my mother and I, and I explained to her how uncomfortable I used to be in feminine clothing. And then she just said, oh, she just wanted to know. And she didn't. She wasn't upset. She just didn't understand. So those were the types of experiences I had. Some were very painful because initially I was rebellious, and I went from very feminine to just staunch masculine. And my whole family, friends, community members were shocked. They were like, what's going on? And then I toned it down over the years. So it it was a process. It was various stages, but it started out when I was about six years old. It was internal because I felt as though I couldn't share 
what what mm-hmm. I was thinking and seeing and feeling because it just appeared as though it wasn't okay mm-hmm. to share it. So those scars of rejection, um, do they have as much impact on your everyday life now as they did then, or how have you, I mean, I, I know I'm listening to you talk about in the process, has the process mm-hmm. completed itself for you? Oh, oh, absolutely. I will share with you, and this may be uh, real deep for many of the listeners and maybe even for the, all of this, us in this, this conversation. This call, can we talk for real? <laughs> that's that's all we the call fact, that. We, this. Is, there you go. The fact that I use substances, um, specifically alcohol, to soothe my pain was really um, healing for me. And, 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 and the reason I'm saying this is because when I realized mm-hmm. that having a drink wasn't healthy for me, and then I went and got help, and now I'm sober. Prior to that, it helped me to deal with my pain because I was in so much pain. So pouring liquor over the pain really saved my life, if that makes sense. And and I, um, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we talk about the fact that many times people are in a lot of pain, and so they anesthetize themselves, whether it's with pills or with alcohol whatever it might be, to ease the pain. And for me personally, that saved my life because it would have been that or more than likely it would have been trying to kill myself because I was in that much pain. And I kept it a secret. I didn't, I didn't talk about it. My mom had no clue. So this is, this is her mom talking. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, I'm listening to Lenore, and when she first told me, that she is part of Alcoholics Anonymous, my first response to her, well, what do you mean? I've never seen you inebriated. I've never seen you drink. How, what do you mean that you're part of AA? And she says, well, I am. She says, well, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I was, and, and I'm saying this from a very truthful place. I have never in my entire life, seeing Lenore inebriated or even take a drink. Hmm. So how she did this, I don't know, but uh, she was away from me for 21 years. She lived in California. Um, but even when she was here um, as a, in, while she was in college, maybe she was inebriated. Maybe I just didn't realize it. I just didn't realize it because she wasn't, she's not what you'd call, I've never seen a drunk, let's put it that way. Hmm. I've never seen her that way, so mm-hmm. I just I'm just sharing that with you, even though she's mm-hmm. saying to you that she had to do whatever she needed to do to deal with mm-hmm. the pain. I just thank God that um it was alcohol as opposed to um heroin or mm-hmm. cocaine or something that might have caused her life to be over. And this happens today to so many people. Mm-hmm. So just knowing that she's an alcoholic, of course we're extremely supportive. And, I, and I, I don't mind saying to you every now and then I have a glass of wine and I would ask Lenore sometimes, uh, she's here at my home now, and this conversation going on, I said, oh, Lenore, do you have a problem with pouring a glass of wine? And she says, oh, yeah, I do. She says, yeah, I do. And she would ask her spouse. 
support for that's me. Honesty. Or I was that's uh, or I would say, No, that's okay. That's okay, I will get up and get it. Mm-hmm. But she's very forthright and she protects herself and you know, that's why I'm sharing this because she's very responsible for staying on this path that she's on in terms of maintaining her sobriety. Mm-hmm. And the reason why back in the family uh-huh. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, well, no, but, you know, back in the day, you know, and I'm hearing what you're saying, and, you know, often people talk about people who are uh, functional alcoholics where, you know, like nobody knows, and and they function and they go through their day-to-day routines, but and then they, they self-medicate in private. And it sort of sounds like that, you know, you found a way to, like I said, your mother didn't know. You know, people didn't oh. see you as an alcoholic. No, I hid it. I hid it. The only person uh-huh. that knew that I was um, getting high, anesthetizing my my pain, was my cousin Larise. I'm very close to her, and my uncle Warren, which is her dad, which is my mom's brother. And my mom and her brother are very close, but Uncle Warren didn't. He didn't tell her when he didn't. He never shared it with. He you. didn't interfere with mother-daughter mm-hmm. relationship. He kept it to mm-hmm. himself. He waited until mom, until I shared it with mom. So I hid it from the family. So nobody. And that was going to be my knew. question: if anybody else in the family knew, and you just answered it. It only was Larice. Mm-hmm. Larice knew because we hung out together, but I'm the only one that's sober. And I did. <laughs> in, in response to your question. I did that because I was dying. So I went I went into treatment and I stayed on my path of, of sobriety and in that I would go to counseling and I did a lot of different types of um spiritual uh activities to get to where I'm at today. And like I said, I'm fifty seven, so I've been through, you know, a lot of the healing and everything. Every all that pain, there was a lot of healing involved. And mom healed from a lot also, as you heard her share, you know, with um, the guilt and and those feelings around how she was violated. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, just uh, listening again to Lenore. This is this conversation. And I'm saying there were times that Lenore, Lenore would, uh, let me put it this way, and my husband still says this to me. We're talking about Mother's Day. You said belated Happy Mother's Day. So for many, many years, keeping in mind Lenore was away from me for 21 years, uh, living in California while I lived on the East Coast. And on Mother's Day, most of my day was crying, just being very emotionally um, void or distraught simply because of the lack of connection. But I'm saying that to say, just in retrospect, there were times that Lenore would call me and Lenore has always been this free spirit, so a lot of times she would be, and she hasn't shared this with you, but she's lived, I call her, you know, almost like a gypsy. She lived in probably about 18 states, you know. So, so, and I know this is just who she is. So she would move from here to there to here to there, and she would always be in a different place. But one day she called me and she said, um, I'm not doing well, and I'm going to admit myself into... Treatment. Uh, treatment center. And, of course, I'm still very removed emotionally from um, what she's doing and what's happening in her life on the West Coast. 
And then some men, in many instances, very, very disappointed with some of the behavior. Mm-hmm. She didn't stay on jobs long. She started college 20 times. Mm-hmm. You know, she never finished. She was just so, mm-hmm. you All know, the place. so, so mm-hmm. different from me you. in terms of my goal orientation. I'm extremely goal-oriented. But this is, and I've come to learn that this is just Lenore's spirit. Mm-hmm. It's, and so I removed any judgment, and as a result of me moving judgment, um, because I was judging at that particular time when she reached out to me and said she's going into treatment. I'm wondering why and why do you need to do this or what's going on with you. You were in treatment three months ago. Now you're back in treatment again. What's really going on? And I couldn't connect. I couldn't connect. So it wasn't mm-hmm. until as years passed, as we both matured and got, a, got more centered in terms of who we are and what we're about, that's when we're able to remove, remove all of these obstacles because personally – I believe that what gets in the way between a mother and their child is the judgment that we have regarding the expectations to fill a void that we may have. We want our, you know, many times we just want our children to be or to live up to a standard that we have in ourselves that perhaps we did not meet. And, um, you know, so then disappointment sets in. And then we get angry or we get resentful and then we distance them. And the next thing you know, we're no longer talking, and then one dies. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the reasons for writing my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, has more to do with to appreciate this whole notion that we only have one life, mm-hmm. and the people who are in our life, most of us, the number one desire that each and every one of us have is to be loved, mm-hmm. is to be loved and affirmed. So it doesn't matter what the person is doing. I think if we do extend ourselves to loving another person, even if they are not living up to our expectation, all of a sudden that expectation shifts mm-hmm. simply because they feel affirmed. So I'm just sharing this with you because it takes, that's a, a process. It's a process to get to that place. And um, just uh, recognizing that life is about an attitude. And if we can move out of our own way and just shift our mindset to say, you know, I prefer to have my daughter in my life than not have my daughter in my life simply because I'm angry or resentful or um, the Bible says, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, gay people perhaps are uh, people who um, should go to hell Mm -hmm. or whatever it says in the Bible. I know the Bible, but it's all based on interpretation. It's all based on interpretation because we're all created by one God. That's how I look at life. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. the unconditional love has more to do with how we hear God's voice in our head mm-hmm. to accept no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a murderer, and I hate to say it like that. Right. But there are reasons behind people doing what they do. Mm-hmm. I'm not condoning. I'm not condoning murdering right. a person or stealing or anything like that. But there's generally an impetus, there's a root behind people's behavior, and we just don't know what that is. So I removed the judgment. I just put it in God's hands. So, Dr. Carroll, do you think because of the age difference, the closeness of the 15 years, that that's why you had a better understanding about your daughter's sexuality, about the alcohol? Because if you had been 25, 30 years older, you think you'd have had that same kind of understanding, that same kind of, you know, getting out your own way? I don't think that has anything to do with it personally. And the reason why I'm saying that 
I've worked very, very, very hard on understanding me and why do I behave the way I behave, whether it's um, getting married, getting divorced, getting married again, um, feeling lonely at times, feeling happy at times, having a need to entertain as much as I may entertain, recognizing perhaps that's just filling some type of void, being busy when I don't have to be busy. It's getting in touch with me. So I don't believe that the age difference really has anything at all to do with me moving out of my own way. Um, I'm, I'm happy that Lenore and I are 15 years apart, but we could be 20 years apart or 25 years apart. My son and I are 20 years apart. I had him at mm. the age 20, and he and I have a similar relationship as Lenore and I. We're extremely close. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of me understanding that, you know, we, we are living in a life that's extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. And when someone has, let's just talk about racism for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone has, um, based on how they were raised, their values and what they've learned from their people who they love, mm-hmm. whether it's right or wrong, because all values are not right, um, and that they impart that, especially when they are 20, 25, 30 years old, mm-hmm. those are issues that they have. And I've made a decision in my life that I'm not going to hate them, I'm just not going to take on the issue. Right. Because otherwise I will be coming down to their level. Because we're all raised, um, and for the listeners in the audience, we're all raised very, very differently. And I would almost, can almost uh, say with a lot of confidence that we have more dysfunctional homes than not. That means that in our households, we are dealing with whether we have a single parent or whether we have both parents home. There are dysfunctions in that household. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, and that's because of their parents raised them a certain way. And we believe those people who raise us. And we grow up and we instill those values onto our children. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's right until we actually explore and evaluate how our parents were raised and what caused their parents to raise them that way. And that's what I did. I actually did all the research, Mm -hmm. understanding how my father was raised, why he never wanted to go back to the South. He was raised in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. and he left the South at the age of 17. Actually, uh, nine. I thought it was 17. I found out later. It was nine years old because his mother died at childbirth. But he never, considering he's from Louisiana, my mother's from St. Vincent. I've never been to St. Vincent. And my father never, ever took any of his five children to the South. It's only now, Hmm. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, that we came here on our own in 1998. And this is the New South. But I'm just sharing with you, something happened to him in his life. Something happened to my mother in her life. They come together. They raise us. We we were raising dysfunctional homes. And many people, I know our home is not the only home that was raised in a dysfunctional home. A dysfunctional way. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sharing this with you. I really don't believe that it has to do with age difference. I think it has more to do with, um, I, I mentioned to you, um, Teresa, that I, um, uh, that I facilitate sessions that have to do with leadership. And from mm-hmm. my perspective, leadership begins within. The most effective leaders are people who know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, and they know 
that we are not the same. And they have to treat people according to what they bring. Mm -hmm. So that's how I look at life. And, of course, God drives my life. Mm -hmm. There was a statement that you made to me about a gift. Can you share that statement with the audience? Oh, my goodness. This was such a revelation (laughs) for me. And I shared it with Lenore uh, tonight. And she was amazed also. But it certainly opened my eyes. And this had to do with an uh, Oprah Winfrey show. And I, I'm just going to share with you what had happened to me that night. I wasn't in a really good space. I was preparing for leaving town the very next day. And it was late. I was packing. Um, and, I was, and I just needed not a movie. or I just decided, let me put on something that I can learn from while I'm packing and preparing. And so I turned on Oprah Winfrey On Demand show. And it happened to be one of her empowerment um, series. Mm-hmm. And she had four, um, she had three people on, professionals besides herself. One happened to be a minister. Dr. Michael Beckwith. Yeah, Dr. Michael Dean. I don't know if you know him, but Dr. Michael Beckwith, he was part of The Secret. Uh, and there was also a female, I don't remember Yana, her. Yana no. Oh. It was, another, it was okay. a black female. Mm-hmm. And then was a white priest. And they had different people come on to talk, to ask their questions, and they got responses from this panel. Well, this young man from Atlanta, Georgia, he came on, and he started talking about, the first thing he said, well, I happen to be a same gender-loving person. He says, I don't know if that has anything to do with what's happening to me, but the reason why I'm on is because I take all of my salary, and I just spend it every single week on materialistic things. And the response was, you know, that that's probably filling the void in terms of you feeling good about yourself, overcompensating for, you know, the negatives that you receive in life. So you do whatever you need to do to heal um, or to compensate uh, these deficits that's in your life. But the white priest, he said, I, um, you know, I'm not sure whether you're, realize, you're aware of this, but you're you being gay is a gift from God. And you need to walk out here and to recognize that this is a gift because we were all created by one God. And that was, and when (laughs) three things happened, number one, I was amazed. Number two, Oprah Winfrey spoke to it. She said, I have never heard that being gay is a gift. And then the gentleman said, he was a young man in his 30s, and he said, my life has just simply changed. When I walk away from here, I'm going to have a different life simply because I was affirmed that me being gay is a gift from God. So the point has more to do with our attitude. How are we going to receive that? I took it for what it it meant. Mm -hmm. That, of course, there are too many people in our world that are actually coming out, for lack of another term, Mm -hmm. and just feeling good about who they are. And not trying to, I, I make reference in my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, that people who have to pretend or hide who they are from family members or other people um, or their jobs or being in a relationship where in a heterosexual relationship when actually they are saying gender-loving people, it's like being in a coffin. That's how I look at it because you're, smother, you're suffering 
you're suffering, and we only have one life, and we never know when it's going to be over. So I just embrace and uh, recognize that being gay must be a gift from God. Mm-hmm. What is the message that we're trying to, he's trying to share with us? Mm-hmm. So that's rhetorical. Yeah. That's rhetorical, but I just accepted it, and I embraced it thoroughly. That uh, more than likely what's happening in our world and the uh, exposure, for lack of another mm-hmm. term, and the discussions that are coming out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're having this major discussions now that has to do with North Carolina and the transgender uh, community and the bathroom. The bathroom. Right. Well, now they're literally mm-hmm. speaking to it almost on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and saying that and actually speaking to the fact that gay people are different from transgender people. Mm-hmm. Many yeah. people are not even aware of it. Right. That's so true. You know, many people are not even aware of that, and they should respect these differences. Absolutely. So I'm just sharing with you, these are my thoughts, and I know many people struggle with it, and I think most of the struggle does have to do with the Bible. does have to do with the Bible, and I know the Bible, and I embrace the Bible, and I believe from the beginning to end, this is God's word. But it's the interpretation of the Bible that gets in our way. So a discussion has to be held between we can't just read the Bible and walk away and believe what we read right. in terms of our own thoughts because our values may say we're to hate black people, we're to hate white people, mm-hmm. we're to hate gay people, mm-hmm. you know, and that's going to interfere with the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Which is so love. I'm just sharing this with you that I know God, you know, that's what he wants from us is to love our neighbors no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, if you had to say how, if you had to say your journey of understanding started when, and when did it come to the point of view like that aha moment of like, I'm there. Good oh, question. Yeah, that's a that's a. It goes way way. I probably would say that my aha moment came when I made the decision to divorce my first husband, and I was mm. with him for nineteen. And that was a a real struggle for me to leave a residence or a home. We've always lived in a house, and we always lived in New York City, in Queens, in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking my two children from, you know, this household that they know of two, you know, uh, husband and wife, Mm -hmm. and I'm moving them to a high-rise in the Bronx. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was such a challenge for me. I just wanted a different life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to feel liberated. I wanted to feel free. I got married as a teenager. I got married, so I only knew leaving my mother's house, even though Lenore was in my life, and moving into, um, you know, moving into a marriage, and uh, and stayed in that marriage for 19 years. And it was not only emotionally um, abusive, but it was also physically abusive. And just through this turmoil, and also extremely controlling, extremely pathologically controlling. And uh, once I got some freedom, once I got my freedom and started independently just making choices, I think that's when I started changing and recognizing that I was in control of my own destiny based on my own choices. And that's the gift that I say that we all have, that many of us just uh, take for granted. So I don't take choice for granted. So when I you went back that. and you got Lenora 
And, you know, I know you said you were married to your first husband for 19 years. So were you in the same household as a family? During the time for com- okay, so were you and your first husband in the, in Lenore in the same household as a family? Oh, absolutely. Um, through oh, we the were years one, of we her. Were cohesive. Yeah, we were a cohesive family. You know, we had family day, and uh, um, you know, my husband, my first husband, was very much in both of their lives. So yeah, we were a family unit. It's just that um, they witnessed many things. That um, you know that they probably talk about. Lenore still has a disdain uh, for my first husband, simply because of what she witnessed. And also, and so does my and, and so does my son. So we don't have uh, any. You know, I don't even know if he's alive. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And uh, uh, can I can I take you back a little bit further? You know how you said that your mother told you, you know, like when you had your daughter, that you know you made your bed, you know you got to lay in it. But yes. when she saw your commitment to this child, you know that here you are and you and you and you are really going to do that. Where has she been in this journey that you've had? You know, being the mother to this to this to your daughter, you know, and did her How views we, change as you evolved? Well, my mother was always very, very supportive of any decision that I made. She was just that type of person. She wasn't an invasive person. Uh, she was not. When I said that she said to us, she raised us that way. So did my father, uh-huh. that we needed to, to, we needed to be independent uh, we needed mm-hmm. to recognize that whatever choices we make in life, we have to recognize that these choices are, um, uh, you know, that uh, that we have to depend on. We have to live out those choices. We have mm-hmm. to live out those choices. So we, my mother was always extremely supportive. Did she babysit? Absolutely. When I would uh, have to do things on weekends, um, go to work, uh, you know, I worked when I was still going to school, and Lenore would come over for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was always there for her. Lenore has always been very close to my mother. Um, so she's always been there. There's never been any kind of conflict, and, and my father also. So I would say that um, even though there was a dysfunctional household, there was a lot of drinking, there were so many fights, there were a lot of things that took place. Um, there were strangers in our house, uh, you know, that uh, probably happened to many families, you know, especially when there's weekend um, parties, for lack of another term, mm-hmm. and you wake up and you find people you don't know living, mm-hmm. sleeping in your living room. Um, but both my parents were very, very, how can I say? Loving. Yeah, they were always there for us. Mm-hmm. If we ever got in trouble, they would do whatever they need to do to help us. Mm-hmm. But we would never ask. We wouldn't say, Mom um, or Dad, you know, I... I made a mistake. I have a child now. I need you to take care of my child. Because they both mm-hmm. want I hope that answers the question. So they were never mm-hmm. always supportive. Always. Okay. And so that's part of what's part of our value system. And all of us in my family, there are five of us, and we're all extremely independent. Yeah. Extremely independent. That's because we were raised that way. Mm-hmm. And also, too, we were raised not to... Um, lean on anything. 
not to not to uh no Lenore that's Lenore in the background she was we were also taught not to uh um be prejudiced that we should never call people names and which to this oh, day my. we don't do we never mock people we were literally punished if we if we were racist or mm. or even you know have cuz I'm mom fair skin and someone is dark skin. My father was dark skin. My mama was light. My mother was light skin. So I guess because, or maybe because she was born in the Caribbean, he was born in the South. We were taught never to treat people who might be look different from us. Don't treat them in a negative way. That they're still our family members. Right. If that makes sense to you, but that's how we were raised. So that could have something to do with my openness. And my spirit that says to embrace all people. Mm-hmm. So I'm with Michelle, Dr. Carol. Let's take you back for a minute. Um, okay, so you you found out that uh, your daughter was the same sex, uh, you know, gender loving woman. Okay. Mm-hmm. And can you take us back to that moment and kind of walk us through the process of what you thought? what you felt, who you blamed, if you blamed anybody, what were some of the things that was going through your head. Because I understand the end of the process, but how much pain, I mean, and that's why I say it's a conversation, how much pain and, and what did what were you feeling and did you ever tell Lenore? Or will this be the first time she hears it? Oh, no, she's heard it. And all of this is in my book. I was angry. I was very angry. How could, and who I blamed was myself. What in the world did I do to raise a child who is a same gender loving person? And at that time we talked about it as gay. So we're talking about uh, in the 60s. And many people were still in the closet, for lack of another term. Um, but I was angry. I was annoyed. How could you do this way? How could you, um, how did this happen? So this is what happened to me. Eleanor has heard this. It was more like it wasn't so much that she was gay that I became angry with. When she was in college and she started bringing home friends who were like her, it wasn't so much that they were gay. I didn't know whether they were or not. It was their behavior. They were party animals. Yeah, party animals. Lenore huh? saying party animals. They they were apathetic. They can all they cared about was just having a good time. Yes. Nobody was thinking about their grades. Nobody was thinking about, mm-hmm. and they would come over, and I'd mm-hmm. sometimes come home from work, and they'd be laying on my couch, or, <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. really, and they would drink all of the liquor in the house, and I was very mm-hmm. upset with Lenore. So I got more mm-hmm. upset with that behavior than I did with the fact that mm-hmm. she was gay. Mm-hmm. And But once I... Mm-hmm. We had a very um, tumultuous relationship during those years. But that's when I decided I can't be continue to be angry. So I have to go and get help. So when I was probably, um, I was trying to think I was in my early 30s, and people therapy was not that uh, popular then. But I decided to go get help. And I had a black psychologist who sat before me, and we had three sessions. And I explained to him what was going on with me and how uncomfortable I felt and what did I do as a parent, as a mother, to have this happen. And I, I'm not sleeping well and I'm, I'm concerned about my daughter and 
He mm-hmm. said it was, and he helped me to walk through mm-hmm. it. This doesn't have a thing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, it was such a relief. Mm-hmm. And I never went back to him. I only went three times. And when he said it didn't have anything to do with me, I moved out of my own way and recognized that this is this is Lenore's this is Lenore's life and this is her choice. And um, so most of our issues had more to do with her behavior as opposed to I never I didn't meet um, while she was in New York I didn't meet her. Um, the relationships that she developed. It wasn't until she moved to California. That's when I started meeting partners. And I always respected the partnerships. I went to almost every household mm-hmm. that she lived sure. in with her partner. Mm-hmm. I didn't judge it. I accepted the partner because I was able to move out of my own way to recognize this is Lenore's mm-hmm. life. And I think when I was Lenore's age, I was already married, had children, and was living my life according to how I wanted to live my life. So I gave her the same respect. And uh, as she, we moved through the years, and she matured and hit 40 and 45, and, um, I was, and then when I moved to Georgia and our relationship got even stronger, and she came to visit, and then as the time went on, she ultimately moved here. So when she got married, I think that's when I knew that I was at a place of total peace with her. And a lot of it had to do with the support of my husband. When they got married and they moved here, um, I think they met. I, did you get married a few uh, a, a, a few days or a few weeks before you moved here? Because we actually celebrated. Yeah, we actually, I invited all my friends over. And we actually had a celebration for them. Mm-hmm. And my husband supported it, yep. and my son supported it, and my siblings supported it. And I also had some friends who are Bible-toting hypocrites, for lack of another term, and they were here. But I mm-hmm. wanted the world to know that I affirm, I approve, and if you have an issue with it, now's the time to speak of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. Yeah. And ever since then, we moved out of, I moved out of my own way. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, hope, I hope that helps. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, it sounds to me like at a certain point, like you said when you went to the therapist, you realized that, you know what, that was your baggage to unpack, you know, Absolutely. and your daughter was, that was your daughter and you loved her, but you had, and it wasn't like, oh, what did I do? No, that was your baggage to unpack. And that she was just fine. That was your daughter, that child that you have right. fought for and to be a part of her life all of her life. Right. right. And you're absolutely right. That was my baggage. And guess what parents have a tendency to do? The first thought is shame. The first thought is shame. I remember with my, um, you know, and I can actually speak to that now, you know, where shame, what will people think? So it's more about me. It wasn't about Lenore. It had more to do with me. So I was affirmed by the, mm-hmm. the psychologist saying this doesn't have anything to do with you. So it was almost like I had to do something with that chain and I had to put it in perspective. Did I talk about it openly that my daughter was gay then? No. But then as time went on and I, especially when she talked about how her attire uh, indicated that she was rebelling. In other words, when I would see her and she was totally dressed like a very masculine with bow ties and the ties and the shirts and the shoes, you know, she was just totally masculine 
And that was almost like a, a major transition mm-hmm. for me to own her as my daughter without mm-hmm. the judgment. And mm-hmm. in order for me to do that or to help mm-hmm. other people recognize I was okay mm-hmm. with that, I literally had to be okay mm-hmm. with it. So mm-hmm. I remember even at church, I was uh, mm-hmm. the uh, coordinator for the Women's Fellowship, and this is before Lenore moved here, but I knew Lenore mm-hmm. was going to move here, and I knew that more than likely she was going to join the church. Mm-hmm. So what I started doing mm-hmm. is actually speaking to mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, my, my daughter, who is the same gender-loving person, you know, um, she's planning to move here, and I'm so thrilled. But I put it out there before she walked in, and people were totally surprised. Mm-hmm. So I did have one person at church, an older woman, um, who knows me very well. She's one of the mothers of the church. And when Lenore came in and Lenore was dressed with, and, you know, with the same way she dresses now, and the, when she started walking, walking towards me, this woman who I was standing next to says to me, oh, is that your, is that your brother? <laughs> and I said, uh-huh. no, that's my daughter. I said, no, and I said it very calmly. No, that's my daughter. She said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, no need to be sorry. That's my daughter. And I said, Lenore, come meet Mother So-and-so. Mm-hmm. But I'm just sharing with you, I'm at such a place of um, affirming who Lenore is because she's, not a ba- she's a good person. When I say she's not a bad person, there are some people who will say, well, my daughter or my son does this and does this and does this, and I'm ashamed of them because of that reason. I do know Lenore is a woman of God. She's extremely centered. She's a free spirit. She will do anything for anyone in the world if they need help. And that's who she is, and, uh, and that's how I, how I accept her because of all those wonderful qualities she has. So her being gender is an afterthought, uh, I think gender-loving woman, it's an afterthought, just like it's an afterthought that I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Most people look at my character or my spirit mm-hmm. first, or how I look, or how I behave, or what my ethics are, or my level of integrity. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I'm a woman. A man could have the same, you know, the same character. So if that makes sense to you, and I know that this is, uh, this is really a process. It's not easy for people to get there. But I will tell you that um, learning the Bible really has helped me to understand God's mm-hmm. way. And he gives us what we need when we need it in his time. That's right. They're taking it all in. Yeah, you're processing. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's funny because I'm glad we got to that point because I I want the audience who's not listening now, who comes back to listen to, especially the mothers who have, uh, you know, the same gender-loving daughter or even vice versa, they can kind of relate to you saying this wasn't just a a walk in the park. It wasn't a piece of cake. This was hard work, and it was about you, and you you weren't really thinking about the other person, the feelings, what they were going through, because a lot of people just figure, you know, well, it's a choice. It's like there's not millions of people in the world that want to be shot at, cussed out, bricks thrown at. You know, that's just idiotic to even think it. Right. Yeah. That, that's that's just idiotic. You know, to me, it's like you know, yeah. you just being a big fool. So, I appreciate right. you being so honest and open about it. Yeah, it's but, definitely not a choice. And I know that, and most of the people I'm around recognize this now. We've had many debates in terms of, especially 
Um, like Bible study, family Emma. study. No, even family. Um, we have a very large family, and we've had debates in terms of well, I do do believe it's a choice, and but the majority of people now who are in my family recognize that it is genetic, especially because of writing this book. I actually get into the legacy of my mother and my father and the number of same gender loving people today who are in my family. And I know that this is genetic because if we go all the way back to probably slavery and also to biblical days, there were so many same gender loving people then that's not spoken to in the Bible, but it's there. Just knowing history, just knowing history, it is definitely there. So it's just that we're speaking about it now and people are feeling uh, having a desire to feel more affirmed in terms of who they are instead of being in the prison of their own soul. So it's just a, um, I'm going to do whatever I can to support. That's that's where I am in life. But it is definitely a process. Right. So you have two children. Um, I do. We're going to move into that second, in the second half. Uh, we have to nine about nine twenty, so I want to <laughs> a sneak peek um, into the book because I think you talk more about the other part of the family, um, even with little, but mm-hmm. your son and others. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the inspiration of the book and about your son. Well, before I started writing the book, the first of all, the inspiration has more to do with. The fact that um lost my mother in 2003, and my father died at a relatively young age. He was 58. He died from bone cancer. And he was the same gender-loving person who I just, um, you know, admired and loved unconditionally. And we lost him first. And then when I lost my mother in 2003, here I am, a senior citizen, and I started thinking about the legacy that needs to be shared regarding such a wonderful family that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. So that's what inspired me to write the book. And to, to write the book meant that I needed to be transparent. And so the first thing that I did was to talk with each family member, specifically my children. Do you mind if I speak about, candidly, about you and your life because that's what I would like to do to help other people move out of their own way. And, of course, Lenore was totally in agreement and supported me thoroughly. Gene, I'm sorry I gave his name, but my son, (laughs) my son, he um, also, um, because he uh, has been diagnosed, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of what year. So let's say that it's about eight years ago. He is diagnosed uh, with uh, borderline personality disorder and bipolar. And he there was such a struggle because he attempted suicide a few times. And uh, as a result of that, you know, he no longer can be employed and he's going to live with this uh, setback, this mental uh, disease for the rest of his life. And this is the way his psychiatrist and uh, therapist speak to him about this is something that you will live with for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. So as a result of that, I had to get permission from him. I had to get permission from him. Is is it okay to talk about it? 
and he said, I would like people to stop stereotyping the mental illness that I have because I'm not the only one who has it. There are so many big people walking because he's, he's, he's functional. He's functional. He just cannot work because of the stresses in life, specifically the stresses in the workplace. So he is um, disabled now, and when I say that, um, he cannot, he, you know, he's still a young man, but he was told that if he goes back into the workplace, this will get worse and perhaps suicide attempt will happen again. So therefore he was told not to do that. And the, most, the best thing that we can do, myself and my husband, is to give him an environment where he feels affirmed and supported. So he does live with us now, and now he's at an age, though, that he does want to be a little bit more independent and that he's at a place because of meds that he can actually be independent. So um, that inspired the book, but I also had to go to each sibling to find out whether they were okay with me being transparent, especially talking about my father, who's the same gender-loving um, person, because they're, you know, that's their father too, and how do they feel about this exposure? And... Uh, they all agreed. They all agreed. And there have been many times during the writing of this book, which has been quite a process, but has helped me tremendously to be at a place of peace and feeling, um, I guess, thoroughly balanced in my life uh, today uh, because I had to actually go into the past of my mother. I had to go into the past of my father. I had to speak about my siblings. I had to talk about my first marriage. I had to talk about being, um, uh, you know, raped at the age of 14, being molested at 10, um, having cancer, losing my first grandchild. Um, so many things I had to revisit that brought many emotions, surfaced many emotions for me. So this was a long, long process uh, for me, but the introspection was so healthy. And moving out of our own way sometimes causes this, but many people say, I don't want to go back to my test because it's too painful. But feeling grounded as I am today, I think it's extremely important for people to talk with family members because we all have different perspectives in terms of how we grew up, what we thought, how we felt, who felt the most loved. Uh, each one of my siblings, we all, as while we were going through this, and we were talking about my father, who told each, each one of us privately, said it to me this way, Carol, you know you're my favorite daughter. <laughs> and then when I shared this with my sister and my, both of my sisters, he told me the same thing. <laughs> so, so we don't know all of this until we start talking to each other. Of course, we laughed about it. And then my father, I mean my brother, how he talked about the tumultuous relationship between he and my dad because my, father, my brother was homophobic. And he could not accept what was going on between my father and uh, his partner of 31 years. He, his partner was with him for that long. And um, so there's yeah. loyalty in, in my family. Um, but anyway, and so we, they were role models and things like that. But that's what inspired me to write the book. But the, it was so helpful um, for me to introspect and to actually go through different phases of my life. I also talk about the workplace and how harassment, sexual harassment, how I had to leave a job because my boss literally was um, uh, coming after me in a sexual way that I find I had to quit the job because as a woman, 
especially as a black woman, um, back in the 60s, you just don't say, I'm going to sue you. You just, you know, all you can do is just make a choice and leave. And I decided I just, I left the organization as a result of that. But I never shared it with anyone until I started writing this book. Um, and this is not just me. I, I just saw uh, the, um, did you see um, the confirmation? And did either one of you see that? If you didn't, you should definitely see it. About Anita Hill and Clarence, and Clarence, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you see Thomas, that? you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Thomas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she went through the same thing, and that just reaffirmed to me the number of people who actually are sexually harassed in the workplace but can do nothing about it. Today we do, but not back in the 60s, not in the 70s, because otherwise you lose your job, and that's your income, or you get blackballed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I talk about that, and the reason why I talk about that is because I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one that's ever gone to therapy. I know I'm not the only one that's ever been molested at 10 or 10 years of age. I know I'm not the only one that had a child at 4, 15 years of age. You know, I'm not the only one that had cancer and had to make a choice between my life or abortion. You know, so all of this I speak to in my book. And, um, uh, and the reason why it's not out yet, people, so many people are expecting it because they read my um, anthology, my chapter in the anthology. So I'm getting so many calls. I put it on Facebook because I expected it to be out by now. But there were some uh, setbacks, and the setbacks had more to do with my work uh, as well as because I do a lot of traveling. And also, too, I, got, I had a five-week illness, um, and I, I got past that. And uh, so now I'm back to just doing that final chapter, and it'll be out. Mm-hmm. So, so what has I, been oh, the effect? Say that again. You know, you, what has been the effect? You know, had now that once you got the book out, because you know, like sometimes you know, you talk about things, you know, with your family and everything. When that book comes out, and there it is in black and white. I mean, I know it's <laughs> you know from personal experience. Your book comes out in black and white, and you get that. You know, someone goes, "Ah, uh, mom." Uh, I know you told me, but it's here in black and white. What has uh, been? Not everybody can see it. Uh-huh. So what has what has yeah. that, that react? What has that been like? There's there's not a thing. Well, Lenore has already read just about the entire book, and my son read uh-huh. everything that I'm reading about him. So he's already endorsed uh-huh. it. So he's seen it in black and white. Um, my sibling, my sisters, they're waiting for it, but they have a sense of what I'm writing because one day uh, last summer, I started to say this earlier, we sat around the table and I actually read um, two chapters that they needed to hear before it actually became published. And they corrected me in some instances, edited in some instances, but they are very um, supportive. Now, mm. you're absolutely right. There are some family members, when they read it, they may be taken aback by it simply because they don't want to be exposed in any, you know, the same way I am in life, they may not be in life. So that may happen. This is one of the reasons why I changed everybody's name, everybody's name. So no one knows, you know, if um, only unless they're very close to the family will they know who I'm talking about when I speak to it. So... 
you know, again, my, the purpose of my book is to help others, and I speak about that in the introduction. That's the whole purpose of this book is, um, you know, to help other people who might be living a life that um, is dysfunctional simply because they are in their own way. Because life is about an attitude. It's simply a mindset. And we can shift it. It's not as always easy for one person versus another, but it can be done. It can be done. So I just wanted to um, also say to you that the, um, you know, I also talk about marriage. I talk about marriage, um, how challenging marriage regardless of whether it's in a same gender, a loving relationship, or whether it's a heterosexual relationship. But I, because I've done, I have quite a bit of experience in marriage counseling. So I kind of talk about that um, and what we go through um, in this process of marriage because the divorce rate is so high. It's well over 50% in the United States. So I speak about that. Um, but I just wanted to share with you some of the chapters uh, one is called The Use of My Most Precious Gift, The Freedom of Choice. And I talk about why um, why we, that many of us are very, very controlling. That's an inherent need that we have to be control of who we are, but we lose sight of the freedom of choice. So I kind of spent a lot of time on that, talking about, you know, the um, uh, the use of this gift and how it changed my life. Uh, lesson three, I just speak about seeking the uh, seeking love, and many of us, that's really what we go after. We may not be that clear with it. So many people choose to live alone, but most of us want love in our lives. That's why we get animals. We get dogs and cats and, you know. But um, So I talk about the journey of anticipation that has to do with seeking love. I also talk about the denial, denial factor, and many of us are in denial, of the painful process of looking within. So I try to help people to think about, you know, why are you so afraid of looking within? Um, mm. So I'm acknowledging the history of emotional abuse. I talk about I talk about me throughout. So I'm not actually, you know, um, teaching or preaching. I'm talking about me and what I went through. And this is why how I'm trying to help people to understand you too can look at your life. And the last is, um, you know, keeping God first, maintaining a life worth living. And I do, you know, keep life, keep God in my life. Very, very centered. He drives everything I do, including this conversation. Hmm. So, do you, I mean, okay, so I know that you, you've gone through a lot. You know, I, I, listening to you tonight, uh, listening to your daughter talk, knowing that, you know, that your son's probably listening or at least knows what the conversation tonight has been. What do you say to mothers who feel that they're alone? There are so many mothers, I believe, who not only feel that they're alone, but they are alone. And many times mm. I stop and about that, you know, if by me, if I'm alone, what would that feel like? I've never been alone in my life, I have to say that to you. I've left my mother's house, I went into a marriage, and I have two children. I've always had my children in my life. I went from one marriage to another marriage. So to this day, I've never been alone. But to mothers who are alone, mm. learn who you are. Love yourself 
and how do we can love another person until we learn to love ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We have to, number one, get over the fear of receiving feedback. And when I say get over the fear of feeding, receiving feedback, then you might be alone, but a lot of times you're alone simply because you've pushed other people perhaps out of your life just based on behavior or words or choice. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to share something that I've done recently, I guess mainly because I'm focusing on getting more in touch with who I am and why. You know, there's a little book out, a little pamphlet I keep on my makeup shelf. It says, why in the world did God place me here? Mm-hmm. And that's just a little pamphlet. You know, why in the world am I here? And uh, getting in touch with that. So anyway, about a year and a half ago, I went to three very close friends who I've known for a good while, and I threw out the questions to them. Now, this is not something that's easy to do because we're not sure what the answer is going to be. But I wanted to know who who am I and how do people perceive me so I can be better at who I am. So the question was to these three women, what are three things that you like about me? And what are three things that you would like for me to change? There was hesitation. There was shock, because this is probably the first time anyone has asked that of them. And one person chose not to respond. And I had to think about that. Why not? The other, the other two gave me three things that they like about me, and they gave me three things that they felt that I need to focus on to change. Now, was this easy to hear? Probably not, but at the same time, I accepted it wholeheartedly because I was courageous enough to throw out this question so I can peel back layers that perhaps interfere with who I want to be versus who they see that I am. So as a result of that, I want to share with you two things that were shared with me. Number one, um, I can't remember the third, so it must have been inconsequential. But number one had to do with I tend to be dogmatic, mainly because I stand up in front of people and I'm accustomed to training and helping adults um, become better managers and leaders. So when I have a position and I'm around my friends and my families, I hold on to that position. It's almost, it's being dogmatic, and I would hold on to my position like a dog with a bone, and I would impose it and stand my ground to the point where I would shut people down. And I never looked at it like that. Of course, my position was I simply want to help you. But they didn't see it that way. So when they gave me this feedback, that helped me to look at myself and to remove that. So today I'm much more conscientious in terms of what it is that I do or catch myself when I am being dogmatic. So that was one. And another had more to do with the second uh, comment that they made had had more to do with, um, I guess, being I'm very directive. Uh, I'm a, I, I guess I'm a direct person and sometimes my words could be cutting and it would be 
they would look at as being insensitive. So I had to learn to be a little bit more diplomatic or not say anything when mm. my, it's almost a judgment. So I had to learn to be less judgmental. So sometimes I may see something and expect people to live up to my standards or I'd want to help them to be better people based on my standards or how I see the world. But people learn at their own pace. And so just by them giving me this insight helped me to back up. And as a result of that, so you asked me what would I share with mothers who are alone. We have to ask ourselves, why are we alone? What is causing that? What is causing family members, perhaps siblings, to be distant from us? It's not always them. It's not always them. And many of us think they did this, they did that. How can they do that? We have to love ourselves first before we can love another person. So to let people in, we have to get out. So that's my advice to mothers is to become God-centered, number one, get in touch with God, know the Bible, understand that he created us to love. That's the purpose of our existence. That's the purpose of our existence. So love ourselves first. And in my book, I actually speak about um, Mother Teresa. I only have a quote there. And Mother Teresa literally says, that the one thing that we want more in life than anything mm-hmm. is to be loved. We want that more than food, drink, clothes, or anything materialistic. We simply want to be loved. So that's my advice to mothers who are lonely. Bring that child back into your life. I mean, our life could be over tomorrow, especially the way the world is going. Talk to that son. I had a young man that said, and he's in his 40s. Mm-hmm. He says, I can't believe it took all these years for me to share with my dad that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid all of this time. And guess what? He accepted it. Mm-hmm. And all of this time I was so afraid. This is a male. This is a male that's speaking to me and a group of people. You know, so people, they are afraid to reveal who they are in front of parents because parents have these standards. So we have to move out of our own way if we want to bring other people in. So I do believe that loneliness is something that we bring on our, onto ourselves, even if we've lost our um, spouses or we've lost our, our siblings or we've lost our children. I'm talking about through health, for health reasons or death. We have other people in our, who want to be in our life, but we may not want them to be in our life. So we have to look at ourselves first. That's my, my perspective. We're in our own way. So, Lenora, so if there's, what would if, you if there's any, anybody out there that have a parent or a child that you are holding at bay simply because you have differences in terms of how you look at life, I'm not sure whether it's our place to judge. I think it's totally up to God to judge. So therefore, I would say reach out, embrace that person, bring them in your life, because we're here in the flesh, and one day we're not going to be. So now is the time. Now is the time to embrace, to hug, to touch, to love, to talk, to socialize. Now is the time. So that's what I say to anybody who is distant from a loved one simply because your philosophy might be different. Remove it. Walk towards them. Listen. Talk, hug. Mm-hmm. That's that's my 
my beliefs, and that's my thought. So I just hope that um, whoever's <laughs> listening out there, that you will just move out of your own way and give a lot of thought to what I'm saying because we only have one life. Yes. We don't know if it's going to be over tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We'll never be able to hug that person mm-hmm. again. And I had a teenager ask this question. Why is everyone so interested in someone else's bedroom? Absolutely. That's such a great question. question. That's such a great question. That came question. from a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's such a great question. I mean, this is, I always say that the young people are much more intelligent than the old people these days. Uh, you know, they're just, uh, they, they're very um, wise, very insightful, very discerning. Mm-hmm. So just from, uh, I guess maybe even before I got to the place where I can actually say I moved out of my own way, I noticed that many people, and we're talking about 15 years ago or so, many people, when they would think about same gender loving people, the first thought that came to mind had more to do with the bedroom. That's the first thought that came to mind. And because I've counseled heterosexuals as well as same gender loving people, I know that the relationships are one and the same. We're just looking for companionship. We're looking for someone to be intimate with. We're looking for some for relationships, someone to share our lives with. So the interest in terms of the bedroom, I think that's just a judgment that comes with differences. And because that's the four that's the what's in the forefront of their mind. That's the forefront of their mind, and it really has nothing to do. I don't want anybody in my bedroom. And uh, so I think this is a very thought-provoking question that she's throwing out there. Or he's, it's a she that this See. teenager is throwing out there. Is that we have no business in anybody's bedroom. That's private. That's intimate. That uh, belongs to the people in the bedroom. So why do people do that? It's because they are more judgmental than they should be. That's well, do you point. see that carrying over to why people are so concerned about what we're doing in bathrooms as well? Uh-huh. Well, that also has to do with their their, their stereotyping and their belief system and their values. Um, just just think about this. We have let's just think of one block, and in this block we have ten houses, and each house we have different mm-hmm. families. And each family brings a legacy of what they believe based on their roots. And we have one family that literally just God-centered and believes in the Bible to the point where when their children grow up, they run away from the Bible. So almost fanatical. Almost fanatical. Then we have another house hold, the second house, and that house perhaps are raising children with a lot of dysfunction. Perhaps the father is a drunkard or uh, 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 abuses his wife or his children or doesn't provide for the family, doesn't work. So let's just say that happens. So the children kind of fend for themselves. So they grow up based on these values that they believe. Then we have the next house who literally mother, father work. Oh, I just hope... um, I hope no black people move next door because they're nothing but niggers. The children hear this. The children hear this, even though they don't understand what the word means. But they hear this and they grow up and they believe the very same thing. Then we have the fifth house. 
And the fifth house is perhaps a very functional family, a very functional family. Both people work. They want the best for their for their for their. Let's not even say both people work. Let's say the 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 mm-hmm. wife is home. The husband goes to work. The children grow up. They all have their own rooms. They're provided in a very healthy way. They have grandparents. They have siblings. Very loving family. Then they have another family, and this family there's only one. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, it's the one. Um, um, what's the word? I'm saying. It's a single family home. Mm-hmm. It's a single family home, and the mother. Let's say it's just the mother, and she has five children, and she's doing everything she can to mm-hmm. to. to to take care of these children, and the children are pretty much fending for themselves, but the mother is very God-centered and doing the best she can. Then we have perhaps the sixth house. So the point I'm trying to make, so we can go six, seven, eight. The point has, I'm trying to make, in each house there are different values. People grow up based on these values, and we have a world of judgment based on how people grow up. And this is why we have so much dissension and so much judgment in our world. Now, I had someone recently say to me that I was talking about how different we are uh, just in terms of um, embracing each other or perhaps creating an environment where people can do their best work through trust. So we have to treat adults like adults and not dictate to them because guess what we don't like? We don't like being told what to do, and we will rebel. And I'm sharing this with another adult who was raised totally differently than I was. And this person was very emphatic in saying adults are adults and they need to be sometimes treated like children. If I tell them to be here, they should be here. And there shouldn't be any other reason why they're not here. I'm their leader. I should tell them. And I'm saying, well, you're going to lose a very good person because that person more than likely, if they do shut up, show up, they're not going to participate. They're not going to be involved. They're going to be disengaged. They're just here pretty much for, because you're telling them to be here. So, so the point has more to do with we have to recognize that adults need to be engaged. They need to participate. They need to be empowered. They need to um, be able to share their opinions uh, without the judgment or the dictation or the arrogance or the condescension. And we have so many people who literally are raised that, raised in a way that they actually have to feel that they have to acquiesce to authority. Now, that person was raised in the South. I'm raised in the North. This person believes that um, there are certain standards because this person was raised like this where you don't, all you do is follow orders. Let me just put it that way. You simply just follow orders. If we say to be here, be here. And I was raised very differently like that. Discernment. Discernment is very important. Is this going to hurt me or help me? But she's saying, no, you just come. This person is saying to me. So I'm just sharing with you how, and then she, but I guess the point has more to do with you're supposed to know better because I was raised like that. That was the end of the conversation. And I'm saying, well, we were raised in different households. I'm not sure how your parents raised you. So the judgment that she was making of me had to do with her household. So that's you know, I think in terms of different values. So we come with Mm -hmm. a lot of judgment just based on our how we were raised. 
You know, I think that, you know, as we're winding down to the end of the show, you know, I think one of the things that came out of, of, of hearing you and your daughter talk is that love that you have for each other, that parenting that really, you know, like people want to throw in gender and they want to throw in, oh, well, this is bad, this is good. But what you've done is love one another, build strong families, and by your example, by the way that you've done it, I mean, you've really set an example for others who are struggling with with many of the same things everywhere from, you know, what are you going to do if your child who's in, if they have to go to foster care or how do you continue to parent, down to how do you build an adult relationship of parents Absolutely. so that, you know, I mean, it's a, it's like really inspirational, and I want to thank you for sharing that with us tonight. Uh-huh. Oh, you're quite welcome. I hope I have touched, and Lenore, I hope we have touched someone because we only have one chance. Right. We only have one chance. But I do want you, and I hope that uh, uh, that you will read my book and the audience will read my book, Moving Out of My Own Way, Creating a Life Worth Living. And my uh, I'm on Facebook, and uh, it will... It actually says we'll be coming soon, and uh, but it will be out very, very shortly. So if you can go to my Facebook, it's um, Highsmith Group. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Dr. Dr. Carol at HighsmithGroup.com. I have a number of email addresses, so I have to Oh, I, I see it, yeah. Dr. Carol at HighsmithGroup.com. Okay. Well, we definitely want to thank both of you for coming and joining us. Um, well, thank you like for inviting us. We really... We really enjoyed spending this God-given time with you. Yep. Yes, yes, and that was a good way to finish off the Mother's Day. Perfect ending, perfect to this. So, um, ladies, we will definitely. You are now a part of the Can We Talk for Real family. So, thank you, okay. Nora, thank you. Dr. Carol. You know, we uh, mm-hmm. you know, welcome to our our, thank our, you. our humble family. And thank you. Thank you. And, and we do thank. I just want to honor um, Minister Sharon for introducing oh us God. to you. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, because without her, we would still be just a, you know, a pebble in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So thank you very much, and we will talk. We will definitely be in touch with you again. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and again, belated <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, and I. God bless all of you. And God bless you as well. Okay. You too. Mm. Thank right. you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Good night. So, Michelle. Oh, that, Terry. That, that, that conversation hopefully hits a lot of homes because I'm quite sure there's a lot of parents out there who are trying to figure out either how to have the conversation or a lot of daughters who are, or even sons who are like, you know, where do I start? What do I do? And from the, you know, from the sound of it, it was communication. Just mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, and you have to give it to uh, Lavon's mother. I mean, how, you know, talk about a, a courageous and determined woman from such an early age. Like, I'm, this is my child. I'm gonna find a way to stay in her life, and yeah. I'm gonna find a way to overcome all of these things because, bottom line, this is my daughter, and I love her. Uh mm-hmm. huh. And that's a strong mother. That's a strong black mother's love. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we talk, when people talk about, well, you know, I'm disowning this, I'm disowning that. Don't, don't come with me like with that. That is not how we do. We are a strong group of women who love their children, no matter what the gender is, no matter what anything, no matter how you walk. 
You love your child. No matter mm-hmm. because it came from you. So if you came from, if you're going to say the Bible, the Bible, I came from the God, the Lord. If it came from you, guess what? So did your child. Mm-hmm. There was no disconnect. You know, it doesn't happen that way. So, but that that was that was information. I hope a lot of people take with them and now can have a conversation. You know, with some of these young people. And they'll pick up the anthology and be on the lookout for her book when it drops. Yes, yes, definitely. Watch our Facebook page. We'll definitely put all the information out there for you. Um, with that being said, my name is Terry. I want to tell you thank you for joining us tonight. Yes, and Michelle, yes. All right. Same place, same yes. time next week. That's right, that's right. You, me, and the sub queen, baby. That's right. There you go, there you go. We will talk to you uh, and everyone else will check in with us next week, same time, same place, but check our Facebook page out as we go through the week and tell you who our next week's guest will be. On that note, good night. Good night. Good night, Michelle. (laughs) Mm-hmm.